Well, hello, my name is Penny, and I am the pastor here at Christ the King Presbyterian Church. And uh, I am glad that we can continue to provide this virtual worship service and, and look forward to the, the day that is uh, quickly approaching when we'll be able to worship together again. And that day is coming soon, and so uh, I'd encourage you to keep your eyes attuned to uh, the Realm. If you're not on the Realm, uh, that's our internal communication tool that we use for our church. And if you're not on that and would like to be, please contact our church office Look out for announcements on the Realm and email and social media and those various things because uh, very soon we will be able to uh, gather again together and we look forward to that day. But today we uh, are continuing in our series in 1 Samuel. And in fact, this is going to be the last sermon in our series. We're going to take a break in 1 Samuel. Um, during the summer months, we're going to be looking at various psalms. We'll return to 1 Samuel. I know that there are still many chapters left, and um, probably some of you who maybe have read ahead have maybe some questions or thoughts about some of the strange uh, things that we'll encounter. Don't worry, we will get to those, but we'll have to wait till uh, September and October. But this, so today is going to be the last sermon uh, until the fall, and, and as we uh, finish up for the spring, we're going to look at three chapters in 1 Samuel, chapters 18, 19, and 20. And I know that that's biting off a lot, and maybe I've bit off too much, but, uh, but the, the whole narrative of these three chapters is tied around a single theme, and that is a commitment. It is the theme of commitment, the commitment that David and Jonathan have for one another, and so it's, it's good and right for us to take all three chapters together. But before I read from these passages, uh, it's good for us to be reminded of where we've been. David has been anointed king. He is going to be following in Saul's footsteps. And, and as the anointed king last week, David stepped forth onto the field of battle and he went to war against the giant Goliath. He went out and he showed that he was Israel's champion and he put his faith, his trust in the Lord. And because of that, the Lord delivered him and the Lord rescued him from the giant and allowed him to win a great victory. David has been victorious in battle. All of Israel knows of this. So how do you think the people will respond? With this great victory, how do you think Saul, the king, will respond or his son? Jonathan. Well, chapters 18, 19, and 20 tell us. So let's go ahead and read. We'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. 
And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed, on, eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. For the Lord was with him, and when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And now moving on to chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that as we come to it, that you would minister to us that you would lead us, that you would open our eyes and unclog our ears and soften our hearts and equip our hands so that we would do your bidding. Father, we need your help and we need your grace. And so I ask that you would help me so that the words of my mouth and that you would help all of us so that the meditations of all of our hearts, that our, my words and our thoughts would please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Kat and I just uh, recently began and finished uh, the new Netflix miniseries, The English Game. The English Game is a, a miniseries that tells the origin story of the modern game of football, or uh, soccer as we call it here in America, the modern game of football in England. You see, in the 1870s, when the, the miniseries, The English Game, is set, in the 1870s, uh, soccer, or football as they call it there, was, was mainly an upper class and wealthy man's game. It was a gentleman's game, that's what they keep referring to it as. This is a gentleman's game. And it was the gentleman, it was the wealthy, it was the upper class who dominated the game. But the game started to spread throughout the country. And it grew in popularity, and more and more people started to play it. And it wasn't just the upper class and the wealthy or the gentlemen that were playing it, but it was the working class men, the mill worker and, and the mason. It was they who started to play it, and, and new teams started to form in these little towns and villages, and they began to compete against the wealthy and the elite of England. And the working class men got better and better. And the teams got more skilled, and they started to change the way in which the game was played. And very, very quickly, 
the wealthy and the upper class, they realized that very soon they were going to lose their game. That these new ways of playing, these ways in which the, the middle class and the working class were playing this game was a threat to their way of playing. And so what did they do? Well, the gentlemen, seeing that they were going to no longer dominate this game, they, they went to the Football Association of England, which, by the way, the board was made up of all the wealthy and upper-class men. And they sought to do whatever they could to ensure that they would keep a tight hold on the game. They applied some of the rules unfairly, and they, they manipulated situations to favor them. You see, they used their power and their authority and their influence not to spread the game, not to celebrate that more and more people were playing and that the game was changing and getting better and faster. No, instead they used their power and their authority and their influence to maintain their grip on the game. See, all they were wanting to do was stop what they presumed to be a threat to their game. And that's what Saul's seeking to do in our passage. You see, following the victory over Goliath, David has been celebrated by all of Israel. We heard it in verses 6 and 7, that when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. You see, they're celebrating David. They're rejoicing at his great works. And we're told in verses 14 through 16 that because of David's exploits on the field of battle and his leadership of men, that all of Israel and Judah loved David. They loved him, but not Saul. You see, the people celebrated, they rejoiced, but Saul, he was filled with anger and resentment and jealousy. We're told in verse 9 that Saul eyed David from that day on. You see, Saul was suspicious of David. He didn't see David as an asset to Israel. He didn't see him as a great benefit to his army. No, all he saw was a threat to his power. And so over the course of these three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, Saul is going to try and remove that threat. He tries to kill David seven different times. In fact, we read of one of them, right? He threw a spear at David, and David had to evade him, and he had to evade him twice. Saul is trying to kill him. See, David's life is in jeopardy. The king wants him dead. So what do you think David needs in this time? What do you think would benefit David as Saul is trying to kill him? Well, I, I imagine we would think an army at his back would definitely be helpful, right? To defend him, to, to protect him. Maybe a, a weapon like a shield would be really helpful as spears are coming at him, right? To deflect, to hide behind, to be protected. You know, a timely disease to befall Saul and for the king to, to maybe pass away, that, that would actually help David's situation, right? Any of these sorts of things and maybe others we could think of would be helpful to David in this circumstance. But what is it that God gives him? It's not an army. It's not weapons. And Saul doesn't get sick, at least not to the point of death. No, what God gives David is a friend, 
He gives David a friend in his time of need. Now, we use that word friend so casually in our day. A friend is someone we get a drink with, or we watch the game with, or, or we talk about a book with, or we share an affinity with. And so we might think, a friend, that's what God gives David in his time of need? That's it? Like, how is that supposed to help him? But you see, what David receives in this friendship is something far deeper than our modern notions of friendship. Jonathan and David's friendship is more than affinity. It is commitment. It's covenant. That word bookends our passage. Chapters 18 and 20, it bookends it in verse 3 of chapter 18 and in verse 16 of chapter 20. We hear that word repeated, covenant. That David and Jonathan entered into a covenant, entered into a commitment with one another. And so when David is threatened, what God gives him is a friend. A friend who loves him. Who loves him, that's what we're told. Jonathan loved David. We see it in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 18. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And David loved, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. You see, love characterized their relationship. And throughout the chapters, we see this deep affection between the two men. In fact, in chapter 20, as they depart, we see that they embrace one another and they weep because they are leaving one another's presence. They love one another. Now, when we hear that these two friends, these two men loved one another, it, it might make us feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe we start to think that something immoral was occurring, maybe something scandalous. But, but that's not what's happening here. There's nothing scandalous. There's nothing immoral. It's simply a deep commitment for one another. And I think there's a couple of reasons why it makes us feel uncomfortable to hear that, that Jonathan and David loved one another with this deep affection. I think one of the reasons it makes us feel uncomfortable is because so few of us, as C.S. Lewis notes in his wonderful book, The Four Loves, so few of us have actually experienced true friendship. You see, we have the guy that we watch the game with or that woman that we go walking with, but, but many of our relationships fall short of anything resembling deep affection and love. And I'm not talking about our spouses here. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a friend. I think that's one of the reasons. I think another reason why it makes us feel uncomfortable is because we look at Jonathan and David's relationship and it seems odd because... Because our friendships are so impoverished that we have trouble seeing the riches of this kind of loving, committed friendship. And so, friends, when we see this, we, we shouldn't be struck as, as thinking this is strange or bizarre, but instead it should cause us to ask, like, do we have friends like this? Do we have friends like this? Do we love others and are loved by others? Do we love them and they love us enough that if our marriage was in trouble, that they would know? Are we loved by others and do we love others enough that when we're struggling with sin, that anyone would be aware? Are our friendships marked by love? Because, friends, Saul looked on David with envy. 
He saw him as a threat, but Jonathan looked on David with love. And in David's time of need, what God gave David was a friend who loved him, who cared for him. But their friendship was more than affection. It was also sacrifice. Look at Jonathan's sacrifice in verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now in this culture, the clothes, robe and armor, sword, bow and belt, this signified the position that the person held. And you remember Jonathan's position? He's the son of Saul. He's the son of the king. So that means that he is the crown prince of Israel. You see, we know that David is the anointed king, so he's the one who's going to follow Saul. But, but we know that because we've been reading. Very few people in Israel at this time would have known that David is going to be the next king. They would have assumed that Jonathan, as the eldest of Saul's sons, that when Saul would die, that Jonathan would take his place. That he is the king in waiting. But when Jonathan strips himself of his attire... And he gives it to David. He is renouncing his position and he is transferring it to David. So just think about that. Jonathan willingly gave up his power and his authority and his position. And what everyone would have claimed was rightfully his, he willingly gave that up for David. I mean, Saul understands this because in chapter 20, verse 31, Saul pulls Jonathan aside and says, As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. You see, Saul understood the threat that David was, not only to him, to his own power, but he understood that David was a threat to Jonathan's future power. And so Saul saw David, loss of his son's influence, and he saw a new kingdom coming, and Jonathan not at the head. And Jonathan embraced that. He embraced it. He didn't grieve his loss, and he didn't try to hold on to his power. He willingly gave it up. He willingly sacrificed his place of position and power because of his commitment to David. His culture would have said that his claim on the throne was his, and he willingly gave it up for his friend. And he doesn't resent David, and he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He beautifully sacrifices for his friend. And this love and this sacrifice of Jonathan to David, it finds its culmination in Jonathan seeking David's peace. And in order for him to seek David's peace, this means that Jonathan is going to oppose his father, and it means he's going to put his own life in danger. We see it in chapter 20, verses 30 through 34. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he will surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? 
But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. So did you hear what happened? Saul and Jonathan are engaged in this dialogue over the whereabouts of David. And it becomes very clear that the only reason Saul cares about where David is is because Saul wants to kill David. But Jonathan defends him. He defends him. He asks, why does he deserve to die? And when Jonathan presses and he defends his friend, instead of Saul coming to his senses, instead of Saul listening to the reasonableness of his son, he seethes with anger. And the anger that he has for David overflows, and it, it flows over into being angry with Jonathan. And he takes his spear and he throws it now at his son. See, Jonathan was putting his very life in danger by committing himself to David. He had to go up and oppose not just the king, but his father to be David's friend. He put himself in harm's way to bring David peace. And that's what Jonathan says to David. At the end of chapter 20, as Jonathan and David are devising this plan, they've, they've figured out this plan to communicate with one another, for Jonathan to communicate with David, whether it was safe or not. And after Saul throws this spear at Jonathan, Jonathan goes out into the field and he relays the message to David that his life wasn't safe. And the narrative ends with David and Jonathan embracing and weeping because they're about to depart. And Jonathan says, go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Go in peace. Now think about that. David's life was still threatened. That hadn't gone away. Saul was still fuming with anger. We know that Saul still wants David put to death, and we know in chapters to come that, that Saul's going to pursue David into the wilderness, and David's going to have to hide out in caves, and he's going to have to try and get away from Saul and maintain his life. Saul wants him dead still, and yet Jonathan says, go in peace. How can he say that? He can say, go in peace. Because though there is still strife between Saul and David, there is peace between David and Jonathan. As one theologian put it, their covenant bond had established peace between them. You see, their friendship established a peace even when turmoil surrounded them. And friends, that's the kind of peace that we can have. It's the kind of peace that is afforded, <clears throat> excuse me, afforded to us. Not because the world around us is peaceful and not because we are free from turmoil, but because one greater than Jonathan and one greater than David has called us friend. We heard it in our assurance of pardon. Jesus said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Do you hear that? Jesus calls you friend. That, that if you are resting in his love, 
that if you are trusting in his sacrifice, a sacrifice that, that not only put him to the threat of his life, but, but actually took his life, a sacrifice that, that he gave of his life, that he went to the cross, and we're told in Hebrews that he did so for the joy set before him. That if we are resting in his love and trusting in his sacrifice on our behalf, then he brings us peace and calls us his friend. Y'all, that is, that is one of the most beautiful things that we can be called. Christ's friend. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, I have called you friends. He has laid down his life so that we would be his people, so that we would not be orphaned, so that we would not be outside of the people of God, but that we would be his friend. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, who showed perfect love, whose perfect sacrifice has brought us peace. And by his work, he calls us friend. And so we pray, Lord, that we would live today and all of our days, that we would live in light of his sacrifice, in light of his love, in light of his peace and that we would live in submission to our friend, our elder brother, our Savior, our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.